You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. At first glance, it may seem somewhat surprising to us that Jesus faced as much opposition as he did. After all, here's a guy who went around healing the sick, feeding the hungry, and raising the dead. And many flocked to him, many appreciated him, many sought him out to follow him, and yet there were some who responded to him with antagonism, opposition, and even violence. Now we might not be surprised by some of the opposition. Take the religious leaders, for example. I mean, these folks may have felt like Jesus was treading on their turf. Maybe they felt like he was usurping their authority. Maybe they felt like he was stealing their thunder. And so maybe it's not altogether surprising that the religious elite would resist Jesus' popular movement among the people of Galilee. But the opposition that Jesus faces in Mark chapter 6 is not simply a matter of some elite people who feel like he's getting out of line and needs to be put in his place. The opposition that Jesus faces in Mark chapter 6 comes from a very surprising place. It comes in Jesus' hometown. From his friends, his neighbors, and his family. He goes to his hometown in Mark chapter 6 to preach the gospel. And Mark tells us that people responded with offense. Mark doesn't want us to forget that one of the major things the gospel does is provoke offense. The gospel is offensive. And in this passage, it offends Jesus' neighborhood, his friends, his family, people who've known him since he was a child, people who know his mother and his brothers and sisters. Mark highlights this offensive nature of the gospel with this surprising group of people because he doesn't want us to miss the opportunity for self-examination and repentance. He doesn't want us to miss the opportunity to really consider the claims of Jesus on our lives. Mark doesn't want the readers of his gospel to miss the opportunity to see their need for Jesus and see the way that Jesus desires to relate to all of us. And so he gives us this account of Jesus' journey to his hometown so that we can deal with the reality that the offense of the gospel reveals our need for repentance. The offense of the gospel reveals our need for repentance. Now why? Is the gospel offensive? Why do Jesus' neighbors take offense at 
this message that he's preaching? The answer is twofold. There are two reasons the gospel is offensive. Here they are. The gospel makes a number of claims. Two of them are these. Number one, Jesus is Lord and he calls the shots. Number two, we're all rebels and we don't want him to. Jesus is Lord and we are rebels and we push back against that. We kick against it because it requires us, the claim that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus requires us to surrender ourselves to Jesus. It requires us to acknowledge His Lordship. It requires us to acknowledge our need. It requires us to acknowledge the fact that we have run from God, that we have rebelled against Him, that we have broken His law, that we have resisted His grace, that we have pushed and pushed and insisted we will be lords of our own lives. We don't want Jesus to be Lord over us. The Gospel says Jesus is Lord. The kingdom is coming in Jesus. And if you want to be a part of it, you have to turn away from your rebellion. You have to turn away from your own lordship. You have to turn away from your own sovereignty and surrender to the king. And when we hear that, when Jesus' friends and family and neighbors, when they heard that gospel of the kingdom, they were offended. Listen to what they say. Jesus goes to Galilee, to, goes to his hometown. He's just raised a little girl from the dead. Very impressive stuff. Nobody saw that coming. They thought he could heal her if she were still alive, but once she's dead, no more opportunities. Then he raised her from the dead. Wow. Here's an This is what a resume. So he gets home, and none of that means anything. He stands up on the Sabbath. He begins to teach in the synagogue of the community there. And people hear him, and we are told they are astounded. And they go, where did little Jesus get all this information? Like, where did he learn this stuff? We, last time we saw him, he was a scrawny kid running around, like throwing, playing around with kids and just being a kid. And now he's up here telling us about the kingdom of God and thinking he can teach us something and they respond to it. Where did he get this wisdom? How, how has it been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Isn't he the son of a carpenter? Isn't he a carpenter? That's the, since when do carpenters teach wisdom of God? Isn't this the son of Mary? Just saw her a few minutes ago. And James and John, and his brothers, and the others, his sisters. And Mark tells us they took offense at Jesus. They took offense at the gospel. They resisted the gospel. They wanted no part of him. They did not trust him. They were unwilling to submit to the authority of the kingdom that was present in Jesus. And Jesus responds, prophets are accepted and received, except in their hometown. Everybody remembers what they were like as a kid. And in their mind, Jesus isn't the Messiah. He's just that scrawny kid who grew up around the corner. What does he have to offer them? Why should they listen to him? The result 
is that they miss out on the kingdom. And this is striking, friends. Think about this. The people in the Gospel of Mark who are closest to Jesus, in this instance, miss out on the kingdom. The guy who grew up next door to Jesus misses out on the kingdom. The people with whom Jesus engaged in His profession, the carpenter, people who needed some carpentry work done, and you know they had a contract with Jesus to build something, miss out on the kingdom. The people who are closest to Him, people from His neighborhood, people from His hometown, His community, misses out on the kingdom because they are offended by the Gospel. They don't want Jesus to be their king. They don't want to repent. Jesus says prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And then verse 5, this is stunning. Verse 5 says he could do no deed of power there except that he healed a few sick people. Apparently there were a couple of people who knew they needed Jesus. Only a few of them. The rest of them didn't know their need. They weren't willing to acknowledge their need for redemption. He could do no deed of power there. And the reason is because of their unbelief. Now remember, the deeds of power are manifestations of the kingdom. When Jesus shows up, here's a new revelation from God, and the signs and wonders that He does are evidence that God is on board and authorizing this kingdom ministry that Jesus is engaged in. When the kingdom comes, the sick are healed. When the kingdom comes, captives are set free. When the kingdom comes, the hungry get to come and eat for free. The Messiah throws a banquet for all and sundry. But the requirement for participating in the kingdom is faith or trust, belief, surrender to the king. Faithfulness to the king is essential for participation in the kingdom. And they don't believe Jesus is the king. They don't trust him. They haven't offered themselves to them. And so what happens? They miss out on his kingdom. He offers them his best. Like, don't forget that, friends. Jesus offers them His best. The experience of the kingdom, the the righteousness and justice and wholeness and healing and abundance that comes with the kingdom of God. Jesus offers that to them. They don't trust Him, and they miss out on everything He has for them because they don't trust Him. And that resistance... The offense of the gospel and the resistance to the gospel reveals the necessity of repentance. The fact that they don't repent reveals that they need to repent. How should Jesus' neighbors and friends have responded? They should have said, what we hear is true. We believe, we, we trust you. We, we're, we want to be a part of the kingdom. What do you want us to do? How do we get on board with this? We have ears to hear. We have eyes to see. Let's follow. You follow. You lead. We'll follow. But that's not what happens, right? 
For that to have happened, they would have had to turn from their unbelief and turn toward Jesus, trusting Him, honoring Him, obeying Him, surrendering to Him. The resistance, the offense, the pushback against the gospel reveals the absolute essential necessity of repentance. They've got to turn. They've got to move from walking away from Jesus to walking after Him. From from resisting Him to following Him and surrendering to Him. And that reveals the central deep truth that all of us, friends, are rebels. We come into the world resistant to what God wants to do in our lives. We come into the world, as Charles Wesley put it in one of his hymns, with a bent towards sin. Our hearts are curved towards sin. We are naturally inclined to selfishness, to self-worship, to self-autonomy, to self-control, to self-rule, to sin. And brothers and sisters, that is evil. We don't like to say we're naturally evil. In fact, just last week, a very well-known television news personality said the idea that people are inherently evil is insane. And it's a good reminder for us, friends, that the world thinks we're crazy. <laughs> like just get that in your head. If you're going to follow Jesus, people are going to think you're nuts. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means you have to accept things that people outside that the world rejects. And one of those is, everybody who comes into the world is born broken and sinful and in rebellion against Jesus. And the people on the news think that's crazy. In reality, it's true. And Jesus calls us rebels to repentance. And that repentance is essential for experiencing everything the kingdom of God offers. All God's best is laid before us. But we don't want to confess that we're rebels. We don't want to surrender control of our lives. We want to call the shots. The offense of the God. If we find the gospel offensive, if we find this, this idea that we come into the world as rebels, if we find that offensive, it should be a red flag for us. Like if you hear the preacher say, we come into the world in rebellion against God, and that rubs you the wrong way, it should be a red flag. Diagnostic situation. And the appropriate response is not to kind of, I'm not sure about that. Push, I'm, not, I'm not ready to go there. The appropriate response is, Jesus, I surrender to you. If we didn't come into the world rebels, we wouldn't need the kingdom of God. If we didn't come into the world as rebels, we wouldn't need to repent. And the call to repent, the call to trust, the call to believe the gospel demonstrates that from Jesus' perspective, we are heading in the wrong direction, and that's our natural state. We've got to turn and follow Him. 
The offense of the gospel reveals our need for repentance. And if we find ourselves offended, <laughs> it means all the more that repentance must happen. Now, I'm struck by Jesus' response. Mark tells us that he was amazed at their unbelief. Like, how much unbelief is necessary to amaze the Son of God? I mean, I'm inclined to think he would expect some opposition. He seems to expect opposition. There's opposition all over the place. And, you know, he's not surprised by some of the opposition. But he goes home. He goes back to Mama's house. He goes back. He's hanging out with his brothers. He's talking to his cousins. Guy around the corner that he grew up with talking about the gospel. And they don't believe him. And it's enough. It's so prominent. It's so profound that Jesus himself is amazed by their unbelief. And I'm thinking about this while I'm working on this sermon. I'm thinking about it. I'm going, man, has Jesus ever been amazed by my unbelief? Wow. I mean, has Jesus ever been saying, you know, O'Reilly, here you are trying to maintain control again. Why don't you trust me? Here you are getting stressed out because, like, this church here is not going the way you expected it to go. <laughs> it's not. Don't you trust me? Don't you believe in me? Don't you know that I'm not surprised by the global pandemic? I wonder, is Jesus, like when I try to just say, I got this, I can handle it, I can press forward, I can, I can do it, I can maneuver the situation, it's okay, we can make it happen if Jesus is just Standing back going, I have my best for you, but you are missing my best because you insist on being in control of your life and your circumstances and your things. You don't trust me. Trust me. And I wonder, like, what does it take for Jesus to be amazed at our unbelief? I mean, take a moment and consider your life. Think about your life. Think about, you know, am I trusting him on Monday morning when I get up and things are kind of crazy and I'm late for work and kids haven't been fed yet and there's all these things that have to happen and I didn't get that report done. And I'm, Am I trusting him? Or is he just standing back going, I'm, ama I'm amazed. You know, I wonder, I wonder if Jesus isn't more amazed by unbelief when it comes to you know, church people, right? Because, again... Right? Like, no, no one expects the atheists to believe in Jesus. No one is amazed by atheistic unbelief. We expect it. Somebody is a well known opponent of Christianity. I don't go, wow, I'm really amazed at their unbelief. I, their unbelief is kind of standard operating procedure for them. So I wonder if, like, I mean, it's those who are closest to Jesus. He's not looking at the scribes and the Herodians and saying, I'm amazed at your unbelief. He expects their unbelief. It's his mother. And he, he's amazed at her unbelief. It's his neighbors, people who know him, who should know his integrity and know that he's worthy of their trust. They don't trust him. And he's amazed at their unbelief. I think, friends, that this thing happening here, this, this sort of resistance to Jesus' lordship, that's what this is about. 
is really more a liability for those of us who think we're close to him than it is for those who are, not, who are, who, who are obviously not close to him. Let's just let that sink in. Because this, is, this can be so subtle. This can be so subtle. When life gets nuts, is our posture oriented towards Jesus? Or are we in panic mode and just trying to get, just, we can fix it, we'll make it, we'll get there. When we are discontent, are we orienting ourselves towards Jesus? Or are we focusing on our circumstances? We don't come to him because we trust ourselves, our ability, our background, our education, our status, all of these things. We trust those instead of Jesus. And he stands there and is amazed. You hear the gospel every week. You should trust me. But we don't sometimes. This whole passage highlights the resistible nature of God's grace. There are some theological traditions which say grace is irresistible, and uh, you, you resist, but grace overcomes and just yanks hold of it, brings you in. This is a, one of the passages that, that, in my view, demonstrates quite clearly that Jesus doesn't overcome our resistance. Right? I mean... If that's the case, instead of being amazed at their unbelief, he could just miraculously overcome his cousin's resistance. But that's not what he does, because he's not out to make servants or slaves who have no choice but to follow him. He's out to have followers and representatives of his kingdom, brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God, who, who have hearts filled with love, and the, and the reality is that love for Jesus means we have to be able to say no to him. So Jesus offers them grace. He offers them God's best. He offers them the kingdom, and they resist it, and they miss out on God's best, and he doesn't just overcome their resistance and say, hey, you may not believe in me, but I'm going to do a miracle anyway. The fruitfulness of his ministry is limited. The fruitfulness of his ministry is conditioned on their refusal to believe. And that helps us understand that trusting Jesus, faith in Jesus, is the condition for experiencing his saving power. That doesn't mean that faith is a work, that all of a sudden, I'm believing really hard, I'm doing really good, Jesus, you owe me something. Not what that means. What it means is, Jesus offers His best, His grace, His abundance to us, and that calls for a response. And if we put up our hand and say, no thanks, I'm in charge here, then we have resisted His grace and we have not trusted Him. The condition has not been fulfilled or satisfied. If we say, I surrender, right? And surrender is never a work of merit. Where God owes us something because we're such swell people. Surrender is, I give up. I'm yours. You do what you want. 
That's the condition for experiencing his best. Trusting Jesus does not mean God owes us anything. It is just the posture of a repentant heart that knows Jesus offers everything. Saying that trusting Jesus is a condition of experiencing the kingdom doesn't mean that we have the final say in our salvation. It doesn't mean that we give our salvation the thing that makes it effective. The cross is the thing that makes our salvation effective. Jesus is the one who says it is finished. Jesus is the one whose work is perfect and sufficient in every way. Trouble is, when he makes that provision for us, if we resist it, then we cannot participate in the benefits of it. Don't resist the grace of the gospel. Don't resist the kingdom. If you follow Jesus, if you find yourself desiring to follow Jesus or take the next step in following Jesus or be given more so to Jesus, it is because he is at work calling you to himself. He is graciously present, drawing people. It is a means of his grace that he showed up in this hometown of his and taught the wisdom of God. They were offended by it. If we find ourselves bristling at Jesus' demands and requirements, no matter how hard it feels, surrender that. Give it up. Because holding on to our offense and holding on to control is no, it, it, it will not ultimately satisfy only Jesus. And the kingdom he brings will satisfy. If we hold on to our offense, if we hold on to our self-autonomy and self-rule, we will find ourselves opposed to Jesus and outside his work of grace. Contrast the disciples. You've got hometown folks who are offended and resist Jesus, and then you've got the 12 in the next passage. Jesus, in verse uh, 7, goes among the villages teaching. He calls the 12. He begins to send them out in pairs. He gives them authority over unclean spirits. He orders them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no, no food, no resources, no extra cash. Uh, when you go to a place... It's, it's, it's almost kind of funny the way it's phrased. When you go, stay till you leave, as if you could do something else. But when you go, stay till you leave. Verse 11, if they don't welcome you, shake the dust off your feet. Go on to the next place. Again, repentance is necessary. Jesus proclaims the gospel. Repentance is required. And if people are offended, it reveals even more so how much repentance is required. Jesus sends out the disciples People are faced with a, with a choice. Jesus 
put, they put it out there. They declare the kingdom. If they receive you, good. They can enter. They experience the best of the kingdom. They experience God's grace that is being offered. There's the condition again. But if they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet. Like notice, Jesus is not out wheeling and dealing with the kingdom here. Right? He doesn't go to his hometown and say, "Okay, the whole like repent and obey me thing. It may be offensive, so you know." Tell you what, just have a day a week. Right? Just one day a week, maybe two where you just kind of do my vision of the kingdom, and the rest of the week is yours. You can just do what you want the other six, five, six days. Right? Jesus doesn't negotiate the kingdom. And he tells the disciples, don't negotiate the kingdom. People don't want to obey the gospel of the kingdom, shake the dust off your feet, and hit the road. When we try to make it look like the kingdom is a matter of negotiation by allowing God's expectations to be up for debate, we're not representing. The disciples in that case have to embody radical trust in Jesus. Like if they're going to go out and preach this offensive gospel, this unpopular gospel, they can't depend on, we got any money left? They can't depend on, hope we brought a change of clothes because we're going to be here a long, little longer than we thought. They can't depend on any of those things. They only depend on Jesus. So he says, don't take any resources. You just go in my power. It's this radical dependence. This is what repentance looks like. You turn away from something, from self-rule, in turn to radical dependence on King Jesus. That's what he's after. And so they, they go out and they declare everyone should repent. And again, there it is. Go out. If they don't believe you, shake the dust off your feet, go somewhere else. And they went out and they declared repentance. And there's this potential for offense and this call to repent and time and time again mark is trying to make the point that the offensive nature of the gospel reveals the absolute necessity of repentance mark writes this because he wants people to repent and follow jesus he wants people to give up being rebels surrender to king jesus You may have wondered about this movement from the Twelve and their mission to this business about Herod, uh, his brother's wife, and John the Baptist. Mark wants us again to understand that there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. That his expectations are not up for negotiation. That our insistence on self-rule is only more evidence that we need to lay down our self-rule and repent. So Herod hears about Jesus, his reputation's out there, John the Baptist has been dead for a while, but some people are thinking, well, this is weird, miracles and things, maybe John's been raised, maybe it's Elijah, maybe one of the prophets, they used to do this kind of crazy stuff, hadn't seen anything like that in a while, but here's G here, this guy's doing it, so something's going on, and Herod is apparently in the camp that thinks John has been raised, Herod had John executed, John has been raised. Mark gives us a bit of a flashback to fill in the story. If you're ever watching a movie, 
They do that flashback, and then they flash back forward, and it can be kind of confusing sometimes. If that, don't be confused. This is a flashback. Verse 12 or verse 17 begins something that happened at some time in the past. And it's about why Herod executed John. John was preaching against Herod uh, because Herod uh, <laughs> had certain infelicities and attractions that he insisted on acting on that were outside the bounds of God's best. Can we put it that way? And so he took his brother Philip's wife to be his wife. And John the Baptist said, hey man, you are transgressing God's commandments. And you might have guessed that when a prophet tells a king that he ought not be doing what he's doing, or marrying who he's marrying, the prophet goes to prison. Pretty straightforward, typical, expected kinds of things. So John goes to prison, but Herod, I mean, he liked John. John was an interesting preacher, not a bad rhetorician. He said things, and, and Herod, he's like, yeah, I don't need him out there publicly criticizing me, but he's an interesting guy, and so let's just lock him up and we can go listen to him from time to time if we want to. Trouble is, the wife was not happy either. So Herod throws this big party one night. It's his birthday, after all. You know, you throw a big birthday party. Uh, things got a little crazy. This is one of those passages in Mark where, like, the rating, if it were a movie, goes up a little bit or a lot. And uh, before you know it, uh, probably wasted Herod has promised up to half his kingdom to a dancing girl. And she goes back to Mama, who's still got a grudge against John the Baptist, and says, hey, this is cool. We can be rich and get half the kingdom. What should I ask for? And Mama doesn't care about the wealth. She just wants the profit. You go back, and you get the head of John the Baptizer on a plate. And she does. And Herod doesn't like it, but after all, he would be publicly embarrassed if he went back on his word at his own birthday party with all of his friends there. Can't stay neutral anymore. He can't play both sides. Well, we'll lock John up, but we'll keep him alive. And the prophet who confronts cultural sin ends up losing his head. And Mark wants us to see what's at stake in the gospel. How much is the gospel worth to you, Mark wants us to ask. You want to call the shots in your life at your birthday party? Or you want to have your head chopped off in prison? Your choice. Trouble is, it's very obvious which one of those is kingdom faithful to Jesus. Sometimes following Jesus means losing your head. The gospel confronts our sin and rebellion. That's why it's offensive. The gospel calls us to repent from our sin and rebellion. The offense 
of the gospel reveals our need for repentance. And it reveals the beauty of the gospel. You see, brothers and sisters, it's not obvious by now, we'll say it one more time, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. Before we can surrender to Jesus, we have to know that we are mired in self-will and self-rule. Before we can be his, we have to stop being ours. And that takes confession of sin, it takes repentance, it takes hearing the diagnosis that you are a rebel. A diagnosis that is scandalous inside the church and outside in, some, in many places. The gospel is good news that answers the bad news of our condemnation and rebellion and sin. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were estranged from God, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. How rarely will anyone, Paul says, die for a good or righteous person, and pretty much never does somebody die for a sinner. How much love must he have to condescend and offer himself to suffer for rebels and sinners. And the more we understand how broken and depraved we are, the more beautiful his gospel gets. Because if the gospel just overcomes a little bit of my sin, well, it's only that beautiful. But if my sin is worse than I thought, then the gospel's better than I thought. And it turns out my transgression is of infinite disvalue. And the gospel is of infinite beauty because of it. So it may be depressing to talk about sin. It may be depressing to talk about the need of repentance. It may not be the greatest PR move. But if you want to be a part of the kingdom, it's essential. Absolutely essential. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ offered his life. His body was broken. His flesh was torn. His blood was shed for all of us who have transgressed his commandments and who have rejected his best. He offers his arms in perfect love to all of us who have resisted him again and again and again, sometimes when we don't even realize we're doing it. He offers himself as the perfect, sufficient, all-able sacrifice to bring us into redemption and reconciliation with God our Father, to make us whole, to give us new life, 
And now the resurrected Lord is enthroned on the th- at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And He calls the nations to Him. All nations, all peoples, all languages, all skin colors to Him to magnify the beauty and scope and power of His redemptive purposes. And the beauty, the beauty, the unsurpassed, infinite glory of the beauty of His perfect love. He offers it to us. Spend time today and tomorrow reflecting on how dark you are. And allow that to catapult you into a deeper worship and deeper gratitude and greater love for the mercy of Jesus that is new moment by moment by moment and abundant for all of us. Don't resist turning from self-rule to Jesus. Don't miss out on His best because you like being in control your life. Let any offense be an opportunity for surrender. To experience the beauty of the kingdom of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.